Uh, Jeremy and Paul preached uh, the last two weeks, and I just wanted to say thanks uh, to them for preaching. Uh, Romans 6 is a, a phenomenal text uh, to walk through, and I think one of the, the main themes of uh, Romans 6, and really much of the message of Romans, uh, is grace. And one of the things that Romans, specifically chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, is that the grace of God has been revealed to us in Jesus, and the grace of God should have a profound impact on our lives. So as we listened over the last few weeks of, of preaching, and we've read through Romans 5 and Romans 6, a phenomenal message that Paul is communicating to us is when the grace of God shows up, when the grace of God is revealed, it should have a profound, not just like a little blip on the screen impact, but a life-altering impact on how we relate with God, how we relate with ourselves, and how we relate with the world around us. I like how uh, J.I. Pack, Packer uh, said it. He said, The truth is that though we were justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces fruit, a transformed life. So when the grace of God comes, I receive it. It's in my life. My life will begin to look very different. And I'm not saying like, you know, uh, I look today uh, or tomorrow, I will look incredibly different, but it's a process of growing because the grace of God is in me and it's transforming who I am. And so a question that I wanted to ask you, it's a very simple question, but as you are here today, uh, no one knows you, uh, outside of God, no one knows you better than, uh, than you. And so how would you uh, see yourself as you relate to God right now? Another way of saying that is, where are you with God today? How would you define your relationship with God? And I think the follow-up uh, question is, are you in a place, if you understand that you're here today, are you in a place that would say, you know, I want to grow, I want to mature. So maybe six months from now, you would say, I haven't actually arrived, but I'm different. I would hope that most of us would say, you know what, I know where I'm at today, and I'm excited to grow, to mature, to be different. I've used this example before, but I would be sad if I went to my son who's seven years old and said, hey, a year from now, you know, do you want to mature? Do you want to keep growing as a young man? If he said, no, I'm content at seven. I just want to stay here. I'm happy being seven. I don't want to ever get beyond seven, so please don't allow that to happen, Dad. I would probably look at him and be like, wow, we should go see a doctor about this, but that would be insane. So are you at a place where you'd say, you know what? In six months from now, I want to grow. I want to mature. So you could say, you know what? I know God better. I understand his voice with greater clarity. Or you could say, you know what? I'm not that bitter, angry person anymore who's just frustrated all the time. I've actually found a, that I have joy. Or I'm not the person who's worried and anxious about anything and everything. I actually have peace in my life. So it's a simple question, but the question is, do you want to grow? Do you want to mature? I would hope, and maybe this is too big of an assumption, but I would assume all of us would say, yeah, absolutely, sign me up. Why wouldn't I want to grow? Why wouldn't I want to mature? So the next question, obviously, is how? 
how do I begin the process of growing and maturing uh, so that my life with God, my life with myself, my life with others looks very different. As we walk through much of the rest of Romans, uh, 7, 8, and all the way through the end, much of Romans answers this question of how we can grow. And the theological word that Paul talks about and uses is this idea of sanctification. Jesus justifies us, meaning I've been declared righteous, but when I come into relationship with Jesus through grace, Jesus begins a work of sanctification. Uh, Another way of maybe thinking about this um, is not only has my position with God changed, but now God begins to change my person. I begin the sanctification, so I look more and more like Jesus in my life. If you want to grow, if you are in that place of I want to mature, uh, what Romans 7 today is going to speak to is there are two relationships that will ultimately, and Paul is coming at this from the negative perspective, so he's identifying there are two relationships that we could have that will ultimately hinder or kill our growth or maturity with God, with ourselves, and with the world around us. Two relationships that if we are in relationship with these things, it will stop our growth. It will hinder our growth. If I, I've been married now for 13 years, okay? February 14th, Valentine's Day, awesome day to get married. Uh, I always will remember I got married on Valentine's Day. I've been married for 13 years. What would happen if in the past 13 years, I've been carrying on a relationship with my ex-girlfriend? I've been married to Kyla for 13 years. But in those 13 years, if I have been carrying on or cultivating, building, maintaining a relationship with an ex-girlfriend, I think most of us would say, well, Michael, that's you know, general rule of thumb, that's really not a good thing. That will actually really hurt your marriage if you did that. Or can you imagine after 13 years of marriage, if I knew that there were things that I could do to Kyla that would just hurt her, would hurt our relationship. But in 13 years, I continued to do those things. I didn't change. I I continued this relationship with an ex, and I continued this relationship of doing things knowingly, that I knew would hurt Kyla. Most of us, and I hope you would agree, uh, that would be a terrible marriage. An absolutely horrific marriage would be not healthy at all, and it wouldn't last. Two relationships that we can have that will hinder our growth, our maturity, our sanctification, the two relationships are, is an ongoing relationship with the law. And I'm going to explain this, but an ongoing relationship with the law, meaning works or performance. We have a relationship with a code, not a person. If I maintain a relationship of works, of performance, of law, my relationship with God will not grow, will not mature, will not flourish at all. The second relationship is an ongoing relationship with sin. If I continue in the way, in the path, in building, cultivating a relationship with sin, I will not grow. I will not mature. 
So what I love about what Romans 7, what Paul does in Romans 7 is he makes it crystal clear two relationships that we are called not to be in because of a new relationship that I have with Jesus. This is the beauty of Romans 7, is I'm either going to have a relationship with God through Jesus, or I'm going to have a bunch of side affairs, side relationships with the law or with sin. If I choose that, my relationship with Jesus is, is done. I'm not growing. I am not maturing. Now, let me just ask the question, as you sit here today, do you have a relationship with the law? Most of us would be like, no, because I don't wake up every single morning and on my mind is not like, well, there's 613 Old Testament commandments and I got to make sure that I don't break any of them. It's a good chance that when you woke up this morning, your first thought was, wow, I got to make sure I don't break any Old Testament commandments today. But do you have a relationship with the law? Meaning... You might not think about it in terms of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the the law that Moses brought to the people of Israel, but do you have a relationship with works, with performance? Uh, Last year, our church went through something called the gospel-centered life, and one of the questions that the authors of the gospel-centered life, when they were teaching and speaking into this idea of relationship with law or this relationship of performance was this one question. If you are a Christian, what is the look on God's face when he looks at you? I want you to hear that question. If you're a Christian, what is the look on God's face when he looks at you? If your response is anything other than his look is one of just joy, If it's anything other than that, then you have a relationship with the law. You have a relationship with works. You have a relationship with performance. Because our view of God is, well, I didn't read my Bible today. Therefore, when God looks at me, he's frowning upon me. He's disappointed in me. Or I did this last night. Therefore, God is looking upon me with this scowl. If I have a relationship with the law, works and performance, I will approach God, I will view God as God is always disappointed with me because I'm not doing enough. My performance always falls short. So I'm trying to give this the context of, I know we don't think that we have a relationship with the law, but I'm trying to frame this in. If we have a relationship where a performance-driven faith, a works-driven faith, you have a relationship with the law. Now, this is what Paul says uh, about this relationship in Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Okay, Paul makes a very simple point in this one verse. As long as you are alive, as long as you are alive, you have a relationship with the law. There's only one thing that can change that truth, that reality, is your death. As long as I am alive, the the law has authority, reign, dominion over me. And to help us understand, he gives an example. In Romans 2, verse 3, 
or uh, 7, verses 2 and 3. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. This is an example that Paul is giving to help us understand our relationship to the law. Now, Paul is not trying to you know, make this a side message about marriage. He's not making a statement about marriage here. He's trying to make an illustration or a point of our relationship to the law. I took, as I said, 13 years ago, vows to Kyla. My vows went something like this. As long as I am alive, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I will love you, I will be faithful to you, I will cherish you, I will honor you, I will serve you, I will sacrifice for you. As long as I am alive. Now, with those vows, I entered into that relationship. There is only one thing that could change that relationship that I entered into with Kyla 13 years ago. Do you know what it is? She dies. The only thing that would ever change my covenantal relationship that I have with Kyla, because the vows were, till death do us part. If Kyla dies, I am released from those vows. I'm no longer in that relationship. Why? Because someone died. Does that make sense? The only thing that Paul is trying to teach, as long as you are alive, you have relationship with the law. It has dominion, authority, power over you. Similar to the marriage example. Now, the question here uh, that I wanted to ask, if Kyla enters into another relationship while she's still alive and while she's still married to me, what does that mean? It means she's committed adultery. She's still married to me while she's still alive. She's still married, still in that relationship with me, but yet she carries on another relationship that would make her committing adultery or make her an adulteress. Now, what Paul is saying here, if I have a relationship with Jesus and I am carrying on another relationship outside of the one that I have with Jesus, what am I doing? I'll ask this again. If I enter into a relationship with Jesus but seek to maintain another relationship alongside the one I have with Jesus, namely one with the law where I'm still performing, I'm still working, I'm still under this idea that I can do things that will somehow merit more of God in my life. If I claim to have a relationship with Jesus but carry on a relationship of works and performance, what ultimately is that saying to Jesus? It's saying to Jesus, what you did was good, but it's not good enough. Similar, if I were to do that in the marriage context, marriage with you is good, but it's not good enough. So I'm going outside now, the marriage vows, to seek something more. This is, for me, this was, as I was reading and studying this week, wow, if I am still under the impression or the idea that my performance or my works can somehow merit 
something more from God than what Jesus has already accomplished for me. I'm looking the Savior in the face and saying it was good, but it was not good enough or it was not sufficient for me. When Paul is teaching the Romans, as well as us, that because of our relationship with Jesus, the relationship with the law has died. When I came to Jesus, I died to myself. I died to this idea of self-salvation. I died to this idea of I'm working, I'm performing, I'm earning, I'm trying to merit something from God. When I came to Jesus, I trusted in his death and his resurrection was sufficient, was enough to cover all of me. Paul goes on in Romans 7, verse 4 through 6. He says this, So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Remember, the only thing that separates me sets me free, delivers me from the law, is death. Why this is good news in this verse 4, you also die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released. I love this language. I was bound. I was chained. I was tied. But because of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, I'm free. I have been released so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What Jesus has done is freed me from having a relationship with rules and regulations and code and law to have a relationship with him, with a person, with Jesus, who is the God-man. I don't know how else to say this more simply, but if you are a Christian, you are dead to the law. Because when you became a Christian, you died. You died with Christ. You died to to self-salvation. I love how Jerry Bridges uh, says this. Um, He said this, In both its precepts and penalty, the law of God, in its most exacting requirements, was fulfilled by Jesus. And he did this in our place as our representative and our substitute. Why I don't need to live for the law is because Jesus fulfilled all of the law. Jesus didn't come to ignore the law, uh, to do away with the law. Jesus came to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. Therefore, when I come to Jesus, I'm done with the law. There's nothing left for me to do. I can't add to what Jesus has already done. Question, what does this really mean that we died to the law? I'm belaboring this point because I really want us to get that because of Jesus, my relationship is not based on works to get right with God. Now, practically speaking, what does this mean? The best example I could give you is something that I really struggled with in my life for years and years and years. And it went something like this. I would sin. I would go to God And I would say, God, I confess that I did this, I thought this, I was whatever the sin might be. And I would go to God and I'd say, God, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? 
And then I would walk away from that conversation with God and I would live the next week like a man who was not forgiven. And so what I would do is I would just beat myself up, not physically, but I would be miserable. I would mope around. I would act as if like everything had fallen apart. And at the end of the week, I would come back to God and say, I now feel forgiven. Why? Well, because I worked for my forgiveness. I gave myself a terrible week. I felt bad about myself. I was miserable. No one wanted to be around me. I didn't want to be around anyone. I was trying to show God just how remorseful I was over my sin. But what I ultimately was trying to do was, God, I want you to forgive me, but I'm going to earn that forgiveness by beating myself up. And when I've beaten myself up enough, I will come to you and receive what you had already given me in Jesus. That is an ongoing relationship with the law or works or performance. Practically speaking, what it means that I've died to the law is that when I sin, I confess to God right then and there, Jesus, I've done this, whatever the this might be. And right then and there, I enter into his joy and his forgiveness. And I live and I walk like a man who has been forgiven, which means I celebrate, I smile. Like if you're familiar with Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, it's phenomenal. The kid wasted it all, wasted his life, basically told his father, you're as good as dead to me. But he comes back to his father with this sob story of why he did what he did. But his father interrupts him and says, stop talking. I am so glad you're home. Let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. No, 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 dad. I need to explain my story and then I need to work and I need to do this and this and this. No, son, stop talking. Let me embrace you. Let me love you. Let my forgiveness cover you and let's celebrate. This is just one example, but when you sin, you go to God, confess, receive the forgiveness. If you don't do anything else but celebrate the forgiveness that has been given to you in Jesus, you still have a relationship, an ongoing relationship with works or performance. That's my example. And I wanted to ask you, in what way do you still live as if you are belong to or controlled by the law? In what way could you examine your life and say, wow, this is a way that I still have a relationship. I'm maintaining a relationship with the law or my performance or my works that kind of thing. Pick your thing, but maybe a question to help you understand what your thing might be is, is what you do a response to what Jesus has already done for you, or is meaning I've got so much gratitude in my life because of what God has done for me in Christ, that everything I do, when I give, when I serve, whatever it is, it's born out of this gratitude that's welled up in my heart. Or is what I do done in order to get a response from God? How you answer that question really helps you determine, do I still have relationships with the law, with works, with performance? But what I love that Paul teaches here in Romans 7, verse 4 and 6 is, I belong to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. Not to a code, not to a law, not to your performance, not to your works, you belong to Jesus, and you've died to works, to performance, to law. That is so freeing to me because now I can live my life as a response to what God has done rather than trying to live in a way that gets a response from God. Does that make sense? 
I will either, either live my life in a response to what God's already done, or I will live in such a way in hopes to get a response from God because he's so pleased with my performance. Jesus says, I belong to him. Something's going to happen in my life. Did you catch what it said? You'll begin bearing fruit to God. Question obviously becomes, well, what does it realistically, practically mean to bear fruit to God in my life? In an earlier teaching, uh, in a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, uh, he said this, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine different fruits that Paul highlights. Against such things, there is no law. I love verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, same language, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So the question of what does it mean to bear fruit towards God is, in my character, there is growth, there is maturity. I'm growing in love. I'm growing in faithfulness, in joy, in gentleness, etc. Bearing fruit to God is not my works for God in order to get something. God is at work in my life. I'm growing in love. I'm growing in joy. I'm growing in contentment, in faithfulness. Again, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a list to help us understand this is what it means to have fruit in your life that is towards God. How do you do that? How do you begin bearing fruit towards God? I'll give you two ways you can do it. One way is bad, the other is good. One way is I need to work harder to be more faithful. I just, I need to try harder to be more loving. I need to try harder to be more faithful. Usually that mentality ends in a very angry, bitter, frustrated person because they see it's just not working. And they get more and more frustrated with that it's not working which just is this vicious cycle. If you go that way of trying to work yourself and will yourself to be more loving, more kind, more gracious, more forgiving, more faithful, more gentle, it won't work. The other way is just very this, is, is this. I submit myself to God. When God convicts me of a bad fruit, i.e. a sin, I confess that, I repent of that, and then I ask God, would you work in my life to begin to create and bear this fruit in me? So rather than walking around trying to will myself to do something for God, I submit myself to God and God will reveal, you ever have a conversation with someone and you walked away and you're like, wow, I was just a jerk. I can't believe I talked to that person like that or I can't believe I said that to them. That's the Spirit of God convicting you of saying, that's, that's bad fruit. Confess whatever it was, repent of it, and God, would you create in me a spirit of love, a spirit of joy, a spirit of patience, a spirit of kindness, gentleness, self-control. If we bear fruit towards God, it's I submit to the Spirit of God at work in me. If I maintain a relationship with the law while still trying to maintain relationship with Jesus, it won't work. Jesus died and set me free from a performance-driven, a works-driven, a law-driven faith. That's the first thing. Paul goes on in these next few verses 
uh, to highlight the next relationship that will ultimately hinder or destroy our relationship with God. Now, people in Paul's audience, and maybe you've been thinking this as well, is, is Paul trying to say that the law is sinful? Is Paul trying to communicate that this law only did one thing but create sin in us or you know, spur us on towards sin? And Paul says pretty clearly in Romans 7, 7, What shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Be very clear here. Paul's emphatic that the law is not sinful. Rather, the law reveals sin to us. Example of uh, an MRI machine. Would anyone ever blame the MRI machine for the cancer that you might have? Would you ever look at the machine and be like, this MRI machine has, I've got cancer because of this MRI machine. It would be absolutely silly for someone who would be a patient who gets an MRI and it's revealed that they have cancer for them to blame the machine that they have cancer. No, what the machine actually does is it reveals to them their condition, and thankfully the MRI machine usually is able to spot things in, in advance so that people can respond to whatever the condition is. Why I'm making this example is this is the law. What the law does is it reveals to me my true condition before God. The law didn't create sin in me. The law revealed what sin was. It identified or it named what sin was. Paul mentions the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Here's a question. Is Paul at all implying that before the 10th commandment came and Moses on the tablets came down, is he at all suggesting that coveting did not take place until Moses put the 10th commandment down on the tablet? I think most of us would agree that's pretty silly to think that the 10th commandment came and then now all of a sudden there's coveting taking place. Consider Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their sin? If you had, bless you, 10 commandments, which was the commandment that they broke? Wasn't it the 10th? God told them that they could not have something. All of this is for you, but this is not for you. If you eat of this tree, it will lead to your death. What was the sin that took place in the garden? It was the sin of coveting. They coveted something that they wanted that God said you could not have. So why I'm making this point is he's not trying to say that we didn't sin before the law was given. Sin was present. Sin was judged. If you've ever read Genesis chapter 6, there's a pretty big flood that wipes out the entire world because the entire world was just so corrupt with sin. What Paul is saying is that the law reveals our sin. It helps us identify, wow, I didn't know what that was, but that's called coveting. He goes on in Romans 7, uh, verse 8 through 13. This is a tough stretch of Romans. I want you to do the best you can to listen carefully, but what I want you to specifically listen for is how Paul describes, defines 
sin's response or reaction to the righteous and holy law. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, look at this language, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, again, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandments is holy, righteous and good. And then lastly in verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. That's a, a stretch of, of text right there that you could spend weeks unpacking, which I'm not going to do. So there is so much that could be said about this, but what I want to do today is just highlight four things. And the four things that I specifically want to highlight is what did our sinful, sinful nature do with God's holy law? And the first one is this, sin twisted that which was intended for good meaning the command thou shall not covet was intended for our good. We all know what it's like to covet, right? Would there be anyone in here who would say, because I covet, my life is actually better. My life has improved because I know how to covet. I think most of us would agree, no, coveting is a thing that just kills my relationship with God and coveting actually kills relationships with other people. Why? Because I'm just filled with covetous desires for what they have and I can't have it. So it creates in me a bitter, angry person because they have what I want and I can't get it. Sin twists that which was intended for our good. The command, do not covet, was not meant to hurt us or hold us back. The command was intended for our good. But what sin actually does is it twists that command so now... I start desiring, I start coveting even more. The second thing is sin used the law to produce even more sin in me. So it not only twists things, God's good commands, and twists them into sinful things, it actually produces even more sin in me. If I tell you not to covet, what do you want to do? You want to start coveting. Why? Because someone told you not to covet. I gave this example a few weeks ago. If I tell you not to look out that window, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to start looking out the window. Why? Because you were told not to look out the window. Sin used the law to produce even more sin in me. God said, don't do this. Well, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do that very thing. Sin twist the law. Sin uses the law to actually produce more sin in me. And then the third thing, sin is very deceptive. It said in Romans chapter 7, the passage that I read, sin is so deceptive. The question that I wanted to ask about sin being deceptive 
is what is it honestly about sin that's so attractive to us? If you were to consider just sin, what is it that is so appealing, so attractive to you that you want to do it? You name, you pick whatever the sin might be. What is it about sin that seems to be, I have to have it. I must do that. I must think that. I must go there. I must consume this. Why is it that sin seems so attractive? John Owen, who is a a Puritan author, wrote a, a great book called The Mortification of Sin, and he said this, the deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals, but when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. I mean, it starts off so simple. It looks good. It looks appealing. I think it's going to make me more happy, more fulfilled, more content if I just reach out and grab for that. It doesn't look that bad. But what sin does is it deceives us into actually blinding us from the consequences of where that's taking us. I've shared this before, but one of the things that I've learned in my own life about sin, and I've phrased it like this, sin will take you down a road you never really wanted to travel. Sin will take you places that you never signed up to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you were ever willing to stay. And this third one is hard, but it's the reality of sin is it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. Sin twist, sin the law, sin Uh, used the law to produce even more sin in me. It deceives me. And then lastly, sin's road always leads to destruction or sin leads to death. Did you catch in Romans uh, chapter 7 when it just plainly said, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. There's two relationships that I can have. A relationship with the law or a relationship with sin. If I foster, if I maintain either one of those relationships, my relationship with the one that I belong to, namely Jesus, will be hindered. It will not grow. I will not see maturity because I'm still hanging on to this relationship over here, and I'm still hanging on to this relationship over here. Relationship with sin. I wanted to ask, why do I continue to actually choose sin? You ever thought about that? Why do you continue to choose sin? Why do I continue to choose sin? I don't know where Rob Rabe just went, but he's our worship leader. If you were to look at Rob Rabe's fingertips, you know what you'd see? Completely calloused. His fingertips that he uses uh, to press on the strings to make chords and music, his fingers have grown so hard and so, or the tips of his fingers have grown so hard, so calloused. Why? Because he's been playing guitar for so long. I play guitar, but I haven't even picked up my guitar in months. My fingertips, no calluses on them anymore. The question was, why is it that I continue to choose sin? I think the reality, and this is hard, is that many of our lives, we've grown calloused towards sin. I mean, we've practiced it so much, it's become the norm. And rather than calling sin, sin, we call it, well, I'm just, I've been struggling with this for a while, or I made a bad choice, or I made a mistake, 
our lives have become one big callous, as it were, towards sin. I've become numb to it. If I were to pick up the guitar and start playing the guitar, my fingers would probably start bleeding. Metal strings are pretty hard, and you have to press them hard enough to make some chords and music. Rob, on the other hand, it doesn't hurt that much because he plays so much. Sin has been created a callousness in us. If I want to get to the place where I'm not choosing a relationship with the law and I'm not choosing a relationship with sin, I have to clearly understand who it is I belong to. Not to the law, not to sin, but I belong to Jesus. Romans 7 is a very challenging passage on, on many fronts. But as I just finish up, I just I want you to catch the imagery that Paul paints for us in Romans 7. I will either belong to Jesus, the law, or to sin. I can't have all three. If I belong to Jesus, I belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. No performance, no works, no code, no law. I'm with Jesus, and what Jesus did is completely sufficient for me. I can't add to it. I can't even take away from it. I belong to him and him alone. And if I belong to Jesus, I've died to the law, and as Paul and Jeremy preached in Romans 6, I've also died to sin. I cannot maintain relationships if I belong to Jesus that are contrary to the relationship I have with him. I cannot be married to Kyla and carry on a relationship with an ex-girlfriend. It won't work. I can't be married to Kyla and carry on a relationship with doing things that I know are sinful that hurt her, hurt me, hurt our kids, hurt our marriage. It doesn't work. But what Jesus did for you, for me, is he delivered me from the law and he delivered me from sin. It just comes down to the question, who do you belong to? And I'll stop with that. As you consider where you are with God, do you belong to Jesus and Jesus alone? Or is there still a hint of performance, a hint of works, a hint of code? Is there still hints of, I still carry on a relationship with sin? I'm still cultivating that relationship with sin. If you're a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus died to set you free, to deliver you from the law, and to deliver you from sin. I don't have to live like I used to. In Christ, I can now live a life where I'm bearing fruit to God. To me, what makes this such good news is I could not have done any of this on my own. I could never have broken free from the law and I could never have broken free from sin. But because I've placed faith, hope, trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, I've been delivered, been completely set free. Now, if you come back next week, and I hope you do, uh, Paul, in the back half of Romans chapter 7, uh, poses a really tough question. If you're familiar with Romans 7, it's a section of Romans where I cannot do the good I want to carry out. I continue to do the bad that I don't want to do. He confesses I am a paradox at best. 
I want to do this, but I cannot carry it out. What's wrong with me? That's next week. But for this week, as we just enter into a time of uh, responding to God in worship and celebrating communion, please, who do you belong to? Do you belong to Jesus? Set free from the law, set free from sin. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't belong to Jesus, I'm still living as trying to perform for God, or my life has gotten so calloused towards sin, I can't even feel it anymore. It doesn't even feel like sin, it just feels like a bad idea or a mistake. Where you are, confess to God, I've been working, I've been in relationship with works, performance, with law, or I've grown callous towards this sin. Father God, I just pray for us as a church.